Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 21? 2 Samuel chapter 21. We have been, um, for the last four months, almost five, uh, dealing with uh, the life of David. And we are at uh, the last three messages in the life of David. Um, I will, Lord willing, finish the sermon today and preach next week. And then Pastor Doug will finish our series uh, on the life of David uh, two weeks from today. Um, as we get to the end of Second Samuel, what you're going to find is a seemingly thrown together grouping of stories that are not in chronological order. And from just a lay reader, it doesn't seem to make sense where these things fit together. And what the writer did was something that was actually pretty cool. He, he started to put to story bookend stories and move it further and further in to the ultimate story of the mercy and majesty of Christ. Uh, today, I'm going to uh, preach from chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. That ends on one book end. And then on the other end, we're going to talk today about chapter 24, verses 1 through 25. Two ends of the book. And then if you take the next step in, next week, we're going to be preaching from the end of chapter 21 and then the end of chapter 23. That makes the second end. And that is going to be talking about David's mighty men and the works that they've done. And then, Lord willing, Doug will be preaching us our last sermon here on David's life. And he's going to talk to us through these two songs that David has offered, these songs of thanksgiving. And so it works as this big circle and then becomes smaller and then it goes even deeper into who God is. Two narratives two lists, and then finally two songs of David. So that's what we're going to be doing, Lord willing. This, this message is entitled, The Consequences of Sin and the Mercy of Our God. Today we're going to be looking at, in chapter 21, the sin of Saul and the consequences that will come upon the nation of Israel. And in chapter 24, we're going to be looking at the sin of David and his sin and the consequences that came on the life of Israel. So it's sin from the two kings, the consequences on Israel, and then we're going to see how David responds in each one. And it's going to point us to who God is. Read with me in chapter 21, verses um, 1 and following. Now there was a famine... In the days of David, for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul, on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke with them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? 
And the Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul and his house, neither is it for us to put anyone to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should not have a place in all the territories of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, as we look at this passage, it um, right from the outset is going to be a challenge for us. Right from the outset, in our modern minds, Father, we look and we see Saul committing a sin years before, and now the consequences that are being poured upon the nation of Israel, and, and the fact that seven sons of Saul are going to die because of this. Lord, help us to make sense of this. Father, help us not to read with our modern minds, but help us to read from your word and understand who you are. Help us to understand the, the gravity of sin. Help us to see the, the radical consequences of the sin that we do. But then point us, Lord, to the mercy, the grace, the kindness that you've given us in your Son. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit today. Help us to read his word today. Help us to be changed into your Son's image today. And do that by the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Okay, so there was a famine in the land, and famines were ways that God worked to show some level of curse on people, that they had done wrong, and God would bring a famine into the land. Well, there was a famine year one. There was a famine year two. There was a famine year three. And finally, David says, something must be wrong here. So David decides, I better seek the Lord. I don't know why he waited three years, but he did nonetheless. But he did do what we we're all called to do. When life just doesn't seem to make sense to us, what we're called to do is to, is to go to God. God, help me understand. Help me understand what's going on here. He sought the face of God. He prays fervently before God, and he seeks God's favor. He wants to discern the cause for the struggles that are happening in his life. He's seeking the king's presence. He's seeking an audience before the king. Now, God had told him it was the blood guilt of Saul, the prior king, and on his house because he had put the Gibeonites to death. Now, for those of you who are familiar, back in Joshua, there was when Israel was going out and invading the land and conquering the different lands, they would conquer different lands, there was a group of people who thought that they're coming in to invade us. So what they did was actually kind of clever, deceptive, but it was clever. They, they let their beards grow. They, they got some shabby clothes on. They, made their, they got some moldy bread, and they brought that, and they pretended to be from a far-off land. And, and Joshua, um, believing that they were from a far-off land, these people said, we want to make a treaty with you. We want to honor your God. And so Joshua 
said, we'll make a treaty with you. Joshua put the name of the Lord in this treaty for these people. And then Joshua found out that the Gibeonites had lied to him, that they were like next-door neighbors. And what Joshua did was this. He says, we've made a vow before the Lord and a treaty before these people. No one will put a hand on these people. But these people, the Gibeonites, became like a servile group, a, a servant nation, a servant group within this nation of Israel. They served the Israelites, but they were allowed to live. That went on for hundreds of years, 400 years, in fact. Now, we don't know when it was, but sometime in Saul's reign, Saul decided that he was going to annihilate or kill a number of the Gibeonites. This was going against the word of God. This was going against the treaty that was made in the name of God. It was reprehensible. We see here that Saul sought in verse 2, he sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of God, or the people of Israel and Judah. It just reminds me that sometimes good intentions that we have may not be producing good actions. That maybe he had a good intention for the zeal of people's name, the nationalistic zeal, but he wasn't having a zeal for the name of God. The name of God was the one that provided this covenant with these people. And Saul went in and killed a number of them. So this famine is coming onto the land because Saul had done something years before and God now in his sovereignty said, now is the time that the nation will be held responsible for this. So God sent a famine. The Gibeonites were servile people. But what amazes me is that we saw here that King David, the king, went to them. The king went to the servants and asked, what can we do? In verse 3, he, he uses to say, he says, I, I'm looking for an agreement with you. Verses 3 through 6, he says, what shall I do for you? How can I make atonement? Atonement's an interesting word. In Scripture, this word atonement takes on two elements. It takes on this idea of propitiation and expiation. Oh, great, James. Big words, right? Stay with me. Propitiation means to appease a wrath, to absorb the wrath. And expiation takes on this idea of removing guilt. And so throughout the Old Testament, what we found is that when every sacrifice occurred, there was anger or wrath for the sin that was absorbed, and the guilt was removed. And in essence, David is saying, what can I do to absorb the wrath and remove this guilt from Israel? That you may bless the heritage of the people, verse 4. And the Gibeonites, being a servile group, said, well, I, we cannot, it's not about money, in fact, God had put in his law that when somebody dies, we live in such a litigious society today that, you know, it's all about money. But in that society, if someone dies, you do not get money for somebody else's death. Life is so important and it is valuable that God has stamped his image in every single human being that if a life is taken, a life must be taken in return. Well, the servile group 
It's not about money. And because they're servants, they can't institute criminal punishment or capital punishment for this man. Can't do it. Kind of like if you remember in Jesus' time, the Romans were the primary group and the, G, uh, the Jews were the servant group. And you remember even Jesus, when, when Jesus was brought before Pilate, they said that Jesus has done evil, quote-unquote, against our law. He's blasphemed our law. He's worthy to die, but we can't put him to death. That's why we bring him to you. That's, in essence, what's happening here with the Gibeonites. So we can't, we don't want money. We can't put him to death. So David says, what do you Say that I shall do for you. The second time, verse 4. And then the Gibeonites, I think they had already thought through this. They had already thought through the plan of what they were going to be asking, and they said this, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territories of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us. Let him die. All right, I got it. In our modern mindset, this doesn't make sense. I need you to recognize that there is a corporate nature to sin. Sin and the responsibilities that Saul had as the federal head, as the leader of his group, that his responsibility would transcend down to all of his people, especially to his sons. So the Gibeonites say, give me seven of his sons, we're going to kill them. We're going to hang them so that everyone can see. As Saul shamed us, we're going to produce this before. We're going to do this before the Lord. The Bible's argument is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. To be honest, as, as, as radical as this sounds, this is actually kind of merciful. Because it is in all likelihood that Saul had killed many more than just seven people. And if we were going life for life, as many people as Saul took, those lives should be removed. But they took seven. Why seven? Most of the commentators think that because seven seems to be the, the number of completion. It would be the fullness now And that if those seven lives are taken, the sin will be purged. But as we've been going through this story, verse 7, David's got a huge dilemma. Now you know that David has made a promise to who? He's made a promise to Saul, and he's made a promise to Jonathan that I I will provide life for your heritage. As we've been said before, kings would normally come in and wipe out the prior king's family entirely so that there would be no rivals to the throne. The fact that David took Mephibosheth, you remember Mephibosheth? To take him into his own home was so radically different. It was so gracious, so merciful on David's part. It's unlike the kings of this time. But now David has to choose seven of Saul's sons or grandsons, all in his lineage, that are going to die. 
So now is David going to hold to and be faithful to his word to Jonathan and Saul, but then take the lives of these seven people to deal with the wrath and the anger that is coming because of the Gibeonites issue. How is he going to do this? So what he does is he takes seven sons and seven um, sons of Saul, grandsons, and he gives them over to the Gibeonites to be put to death. But what he did with Mephibosheth is he said, Mephibosheth, I had promised you safety. Remember, I had promised you that you could stay at my table. I'm not going to have his life taken. So it was done. Verse 10 gives us something that's hard to speak about. The mom, Rizpah, had seen two of her sons of the seven killed. Their bodies are hanging. They didn't bury the bodies. They left the bodies out there to rot. It was a sign of judgment. The animals at times would come and find dead bodies to eat. This mom said, I could not protect my sons, but I'm going to protect their bodies. And she sat out there, and it seems to be for months, as this body is decaying, she is not going to allow the birds or the animals to get to her son's bodies. The stench of sin, the stench of death, and she is there protecting. I couldn't protect my boys' lives, but I'm going to mourn their deaths. I'm going to protect them from dishonor and the loyal love that Rispa showed to these boys is amazing. In verse 11, David is told of this. In all likelihood, David hadn't even gone out here. He hasn't seen this. For months, these people are out there. These bodies are out there. And David thinks of the sacrificial and loyal love of Rizpah. He thinks of, he can do something that she could not do. He probably thinks in his mind about Saul and Jonathan and the the terrible death that they had to go through and how their bodies were mistreated. And David has in his mind, I am going to create a lasting memorial for them. I'm going to get the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, and I'm going to get these bones of these seven people, and I'm going to put them into a proper burial. So he gathered them up. He gave them an appropriate burial. And in doing so, what David is now displaying is his loyal love to his father-in-law who tried to kill him and to his best friend, Jonathan. He buried them with honor. Verse 14. And they buried the bones of Saul and the son, Jonathan, in the land of Benjamin at Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king demanded, This is an important line. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. 
The actions that Saul did demanded justice. The first book ends, Saul's sin. Saul's sin against the Gibeonites. He took a life of the Gibeonites and he went against the treaty made in the name of the Lord. So he blasphemed the name of the Lord in breaking this treaty. That sin brought about consequences upon the people. Our sin doesn't stay private. Our sin goes out public. It affects other people in our lives. His sin, the consequences, and then the justice of God. That God could have taken every person in Saul's family. He allowed for seven. We oftentimes talk about grace. Grace is giving us exactly what we don't deserve. But mercy is tempered. God gives us less than we deserve. Saul deserved his whole family to be wiped out. It wasn't. Saul lost seven. Let's go to the other bookend. Chapter 24. Jump to chapter 24 with me. So now you remember we had said that there are two narratives talking about sin and consequences. That's the outer circle. Then we have an inner circle. Next week we'll talk about the mighty men of God. And then the most inner circle, Pastor Doug will be preaching on, that talks about his final poem and his thanksgiving. So we're now on the other book end of the sin, but now it's the sin of David, chapter 24. And again, for chapter 24, verse 1, and again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. Does it sound familiar? The anger of the Lord is kindled again. And he incited David against them, the people of Israel, going number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. That's what David is saying to Joab. So David's compulsion. David has just won some amazing battles, which we're going to talk about next week. And after he's winning these amazing battles, like many men of his time, many leaders of his time, they want to count the noses. They want to count the group. I want to see how powerful I am. And David decides to take a census. Now, to be honest, I can't tell you why. I look through so many different commentaries, and they go all over the place when they talk about what David did wrong. I don't know, but I tell you he sinned. Now, he may have sinned in pride. Most of them believe that it was pride. It's all about how big my army is. It could be. Some, and a number of them, say that he clearly sinned in manner because if you look at Exodus, it tells you how to take a census, and David didn't do that. He did not take a tax from the people that were counted, a purity tax. Well, whether it's the manner or his motive, David sinned in this. If you have time later today, you know, pastors always say that, but people don't normally do it. <laughs> if you have time later today, in First Chronicles chapter 21, there's a parallel passage that talks about this. I wish I had a lot of time this morning, but I don't. There's a dilemma here. 
if you read this, it says that the Lord incited David to do something wrong. If you go to chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles, it says that it was Satan that incited David to do something wrong. And in both chapters, David is going to say, I did something wrong. So is it God's anger that's causing this? Is it Satan's hatred that is causing it? Or is it David's pride and wolfiness wolfiness that is causing it? And the only answer I can give you is yes. (laughs) God and his sovereignty. A catechism says it this way. From all of eternity, God did by his most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Fancy words for this. God's in control of everything. Second part of the catechism. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, God is not the author, nor is violence done to the will of the creature, that basically means God doesn't make a puppet, he doesn't make somebody's sin, or liberty or contingencies of second causes, that's other people in other contingencies, like Satan, taken away but rather established. I think what the catechism framers were thinking is this. They were thinking this. Number one, God is sovereign over all. The writer here is saying that God is sovereign over all. Earlier writers were focusing solely on the sovereignty of God. Later writers started to look and say, there was another cause behind this. Satan, that's where the chronicler gets to. Satan is behind this. Just correct. God is overall Satan, but they're individuals that make choices freely of their own will. God is testing David. Satan takes this test and makes it a temptation. And if you're not familiar, read James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy when my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And when endurance finishes its work, let you be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. What what James is arguing is that there are every circumstance that you go through is a test potentially to grow your faith. You must trust God in this trial. But that exact same event can become a temptation to hinder your faith if you trust yourself. He says in verse 13 and following, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. So is God sovereign over this? Yes. Is Satan culpable in this? Yes. But ultimately, it's David's choice to take this potential test and it becomes a temptation. So we see David's compulsion leads to David's counselor. Believe it or not, who in the world is going to counsel David now? Joab. (laughs) I'm just like, are you kidding me? God's going to use Joab? Joab was the one that put Uriah to death. 
He doesn't seem to be the most moral guy in the book. But Joab hears this and says, verse 3, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my Lord the King still see it. Why does my Lord the King delight in such a thing? He sees this census and he says, this stinks. Job is no moral giant, but he saw through this. He said this is wrong. If you read in First Chronicles 21, it actually says this line. Job said, why should you bring or be the cause of guilt for Israel? Not just the fact that you're doing something that you're delighting in, but you're bringing guilt upon Israel. And what do I find with David? Just like with you and me. When we want something bad enough, we don't even think about the consequences. That when we want something, warnings go unheeded. We don't even think about it. David, in his arrogance and his pride, it led him to ignore the warnings. He got a warning with Bathsheba. Remember? That's Uriah's wife. He didn't listen then. He's not listening now. That's what happens when we go into sin. No one is making David sin. He's not ignorant. He's been warned. He does it anyway. David is determined to do what he wants. And I could have one finger out, three fingers point back, because I can't tell you how many times I know and I've been warned and I choose to do it anyway. And probably with you as well. So here's my warning to you, my brothers and sisters. Many times in David's history, we have found that he inquires of the Lord, inquires of the Lord, inquires of the Lord. His biggest failures are when he did not inquire of the Lord. He moved an ark and never sought the word of God, never prayed. He committed adultery, didn't seek the word of God, didn't pray. And now he is doing a census. He didn't seek the word of God. He didn't pray. The warning is there. We must seek God. But there's a second warning I see clearly here. We must have people that will hold us accountable. David refused accountability. I'm not listening to you. What's amazing here is if you, the section I just read, he didn't even answer Joab's question. He just pushed it aside and he says, do what I'm telling you to do. So David gets his census, verses 5 through 9. So Joab goes out and over the next almost 10 months, he gets a census. And Joab comes back in verse 9 and he says, here's your census. 800 valiant men, 500 men of Judah. And then we get to verse 10. It's amazing. It's been almost 10 months. And when he hears the numbers, it says, oh, the Holy Spirit opens his heart. But David's heart is struck after him, after he had numbered the people. 
And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly what I've done. David's conscience is troubled. I don't know if you're here today, I don't know if your conscience is troubled. Maybe as, as Pastor Tim and Doug and I get an opportunity to preach and we're, we're talking about the life of David, maybe you've been sitting there. I know when I've been sitting under these brothers preaching, I sit there, my, I'm squirming in my seat sometimes because it's like, oh man, that felt, that was hard. Maybe you're feeling the conviction today. I pray that you are because that means that the Holy Spirit is tapping you. It is a gracious thing that God is doing if you're feeling levels of guilt or conviction. It should move you to respond. Conviction can lead to callousness or conviction can lead to confession. See, if conviction comes and you don't listen to it, it will become callous like fingers, stringed instrument fingers. They become calloused. But conviction can move you to confession. And that's what happened in David's life. That's what happened many, many times in David's life. That's what didn't happen with Saul, the first bookend. But what was different with David, this bookend, is that when he heard the conviction, his heart was broken. Is yours. I want you to know that believers can offend God. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Believers can displease God. Believers can disrupt the fellowship of God, but the beauty of what God does for those of us that are in Christ is this. He says in in 1 John, you know this passage, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful word. God says that, you know, you're a sinner. And David says, yes, I am. And he says, I've done, verse 10, I've done very foolishly. Hear the emphatic words. I've sinned greatly. I've done very foolishly. David's troubled consciousness now leads to his confession. I've sinned. Now, if we're thinking the way most modern people think, David sinned. Now he has confessed. That should do it. Everything's done. But that's not why the story goes. David arose in the morning, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet of Gad, David Seer. Let me stop there for a moment. David was a prophet. God had spoken to David by himself directly many times. God chose on this occasion not to speak to David directly, but through an intermediary. He had done that with Nathan previously. He has done that, doing that now with Gad. It is almost as if, David, you didn't want to listen to me before. Now I'm going to bring an intermediary in to speak to you. Verse 12, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, And for these next three verses, I'll just tell you what David, David has got a choice. In essence, God says, pick your poison, David. I'm going to lay before you three options, David. You want it to be big king, David. Here are your three options. 
Option number one. I am going to bring a famine on the land for three years. Remember over here, we already had the famine for three years. We don't want that. Option number two, David. I am going to give three months where you're going to be terrorized by your enemies. Or option number three, I'm going to give you three days of pestilence, a plague that's going to come into your hands. Wow. God, I just asked for forgiveness. Aren't you going to take this thing away? Doesn't that fix it? No. Pardon does not negate the consequences of sin. So I can get famine, I could get military defeat, or I can get a plague. Verse 14, David said to Gad, I am I'm in great distress. And then he says, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of man. He says, please, no famine. My, my land has already felt famine. And Lord, my enemies... They're not as merciful as you. I'll take three days of pestilence from you. What a choice. What a difficult choice David had to make. The consequences of our sin. But he relied on the mercy of God. So, once again, you would think that David, that God would say, okay, all done, right? That's not what happens. David consequences, verses 15 and following. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people of Dan to Beersheba, how many? 70,000 men. You wanted to count up your army, David? I just took 70,000 of them. And David, the angel of the Lord, is sitting there with his sword, First Chronicles says, ready to come into Jerusalem, and God says, wait, hold. And David, not knowing that God has said, hold, David says, Lord, put this on me. Take your wrath and put it on me and my family. Do not let your sword come against your people, your sheep. David intercedes for it. He says, punish me and my successors. Please spare these people. As God has been doing in David's life time after time, he spares David's life, but he points us to the Savior. Because David's life would be spared in this, but David could not even realize that hundreds of years later, God's wrath would pour upon David's family member, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this intercession would be fulfilled at the cross of Calvary. Don't you see the gospel? Oh, man, that's cool. Verse 18, God's solution. David built an altar. And Gad came to David that day and said to him, go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. 
So David went up at the word of the Lord and he commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king coming and he put his face down because he's afraid. And David basically says from now to the end of the chapter, I want to buy your land so that I can make a sacrifice to my God so that this plague may end. Arana says, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the oxen. I'll give you the wood. I'll give you the land. David says, I don't want to take anything that's not going to cost me anything because a sacrifice should cost me something. So David suffers the cost. He buys the land. He offers the sacrifice. The sin is relieved. Look at the last verse. David built an altar there to the Lord and offered a burnt offering, a peace offering. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land. Does that sound familiar? Just like the end of chapter 21. I mean, the end of verse 14 of chapter 21. The book ends. The sin of Saul. The consequences lead to David acting as a judge. This bookend. The sin of David, the consequences, David acting as a priest. Brings us smack dab in the middle, the gospel. At the cross, God's holy justice and his holy compassion and love poured out. His holy anger for your sin and mine was poured out upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin has consequences. But his holy love for people caused him not to annihilate us all. To open the door for faith and peace. I want you to hear this as we close. Where did this all take place? It took place just outside of the city. To the north and to the east. Years before, Abraham brought his son up to an altar. God had told him, bring your son Isaac, the son you love, and sacrifice him to me. And, and as, he, as he grabbed this knife and he's ready to plunge this knife into his son, God says, stay, wait. Kind of like he just did before Jerusalem to the angel. Hold. And there's a ram caught in the thicket over here. And God allows for that lamb to replace Isaac. And the lamb is sacrificed instead of Isaac. It's on that same ground that David is worshiping now where Abraham sacrificed his son or came close to sacrificing his son. It's on that same land that Solomon is going to bring this, build this amazing temple years later. On the same land. And it's on the same land a thousand years ahead that Jesus Christ outside the city gates is going to die on a cross for our sins. So what do we do with all of that? 
I need you to recognize that the sin and the consequences of sin are great. Sin attacks every person. It degrades, it dispaces, it destroys. Every broken marriage, every disrupted home, every cancer, every shattered friendship, every argument, every disagreement, every suffering, every pain has come because of sin. It's a terrible thing. The Bible even says it has a stench of death. Does it sound like chapter 21? We cannot ignore it. We cannot gloss over it. But there is only one solution to sin. Right in the middle, Christ. He is your answer to your deepest problem, my brothers and sisters. He is your answer to your most plaguing situation. Sin is not the end of the story. Grace is speaking to you this morning. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, what? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Say it. Hallelujah. What? What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God is he, full atonement can it be, say it, hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry, now in heaven, exalted high, say it with meaning, hallelujah, what a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, full atonement. I'm sorry, then a new song we will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a savior. I want you to think about this as we leave. Take sin seriously and take God seriously. Don't play around with it. Second, Be accountable to somebody, somebody who's godly. Put yourself in their stead, and when they warn you, believe it's coming from God. So take sin seriously. Don't avoid it. Take God seriously. Don't avoid it. Take accountability seriously. Don't avoid it. And then finally, if you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I don't know how many more days you have. I pray today would be the day that you would trust Christ. And for the many of us here that do know him, I pray you walk out of here saying, hallelujah, what a savior. So Father, we praise you. And we thank you. Because you've given us what we absolutely do not deserve grace and mercy. The consequences of our sin are great, Lord, but your mercy is even greater. Paul wrote that in Romans. He said, where sin abounds, grace grace abounds all the more. We praise you. So awaken us today to the mercy of your God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.